0: Have you ever heard of fruit hunters? Anybody? Yeah, just like me. I'd never heard of it either, uh, until I saw I actually heard a pastor, another pastor telling this story or sharing this illustration. give you know, it's not original to me, but I, I, I didn't believe him, so I looked it up, not that he wasn't believable, but I looked it up, and it's a real thing. There are people called fruit hunters, and their goal is that they want to find the most exotic fruits. That they can find, and so they travel to the ends of the earth, literally, uh, to look for these fruits. Any, I'm sure you've heard of the actor Bill Pullman. You know, you've, anybody heard of him? Okay, a few people, at least a few people. He's one of these people. He's a fruit hunter. And they go to the ends of the earth. There was actually a documentary I found out on this, on these fruit hunters in 2013. You can look it up. If you have nothing better to do, you can watch it later on. Uh, But these guys travel to the ends of the earth and they find rare and exotic fruits. Fruits like the star fruit or the dragon fruit or the lychee fruit. But there's one in particular, and you see the picture here. This is called the rambutan fruit. How many people think that looks like something you want to eat? Anybody? No? Yeah, I look at this, and I see this hairy thing, and it makes apples and oranges, to me, look pretty plain, pretty normal. But this actually, if you peel off the hairy part inside, uh, it's like a grape, and they say it's very sweet. So it's from Malaysia. They say it's very sweet, and it tastes like a grape. I think I'll stick with grapes, but you know, if you want to branch out, go to Malaysia, find you the renbutan fruit. Um, it's very rare. Again, to me, this makes apples, oranges, bananas look pretty plain. Well, when it comes to being fanatical, being obsessed with fruit, you and I are to be that way. What I'm talking about, though, is not you know, rare fruit like that. I'm talking about spiritual fruit. And it's supposed to be evident. It's supposed to be to the ends of the earth, for the advancement of the gospel, for the glory of God. It's supposed to be displayed in our lives. It's not supposed to be rare and hard to find like some of these fruits, these fruit hunters go and get. It's supposed to be evident to everybody. It should be easy to spot believers by the fruit that exists in our lives, and that is why we are in this series. Now, Caleb introduced the series last week, uh, did a great job. If you haven't had a chance to look at it, you can go back and watch it online. It's online on the website, BoxCast, Facebook, all of those things. Check it out. Um, But the the name of the series is called Fruit Gushers, and this too, I think every since this candy came out, any pastor that's preached a series on this called it Fruit Gushers because it's just hard to resist. Not Again, not original to me, but, but, but also because if you've ever had Fruit Gushers candy, and there again, show your hand if you've had it's good stuff. Yeah, don't steal my Fruit Gushers after this. This is actually Caleb's, but he's sharing it with me. Um, it, Fruit Gushers candy, the, the unique thing about it is if you haven't had it, there's juice on the inside, right? It's on the inside, and what happens when you bite into that? That, that chewy candy, that gummy candy. Well, the juice flows out. It's a nice little surprise, isn't it? So there's juice on the inside, but once you activate it, it flows on the outside. And that is exactly what spiritual fruit is to be for us. It's to be on the inside, yes, by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's the theme of our series, by the way. The fruit of the Spirit is on the inside. It flows on the inside by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, but it's also to flow outward for the advancement of the gospel and to the glory of God. That's what spiritual fruit should do. And we're going to spend the next nine weeks looking at the different fruit and what that means and how how it's supposed to flow but real quickly just a, a couple of things I want to point out and review again uh, Caleb's sermon last week was the introduction to this a couple of things though first of all the fruit of the spirit is in us the theme it flows out of us Galatians 522 and 23 is where we get this it is the fruit passage I want to read that for you. Uh, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, or faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there is no law. I mean, we're talking about evangelism, blooming where you're planting, the fruit being evident, uh, living missionally, wherever you are, the, the fruit of God, the characteristics of God displayed in our lives for the advancement of the gospel and the glory of God. So there's a couple of things I want you to think about. Number one is that we cannot... Cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in our lives through human effort alone. On the other hand, we cannot expect God to cultivate spiritual fruit in our lives while we sit back and do nothing. It's both and, not either or. He cultivates the presence of the Holy Spirit, but we do have a role in it. There are things that we do to cultivate spiritual fruit. We have a part. Also, the secret to the flow of spiritual fruit and our unity with God and others, and we'll see how that ties in together today, is yielding to the Holy Spirit and abiding in Christ. It's the the Spirit that produces the fruit in us. We understand that the flow of spiritual fruit is the result of both actively working on things like spiritual disciplines but also we understand that it's not just in doing those things it's the miraculous work of the holy spirit in our lives and in our hearts as we do those things again it's both and not either work either or the work of the holy spirit and our responsibility our actions we also need to remember that the fruit of the spirit is singular not plural if you are a child of God, living in the Spirit, being obedient to, to God, these all of these different flavors, it's one fruit, nine flavors. Okay? Think of it that way. So all of these characteristics will be displayed in your life, not just a select fruit. It is singular, not plural. And we're gonna look at each of those different flavors over the next several weeks. Today we look at love. Now, if you look at Galatians 5, you'll see that Paul kind of lays the foundation. He has already made the point that what really matters is faith expressing itself in love in Galatians 5, 6. He also makes the point that we should be serving one another humbly in love in verse 13 of chapter 5. And that the Old Testament law is summed up in the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. He is, Paul, what he's doing here is he is... By putting love first, he's echoing Jesus' commandment in Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Love God, love people. And he's echoing that. He's saying that love is the foundation. Love is the overall grace from which all the other uh, graces flow. All the other flavors come. And here's the point. Put it another way. Love binds all the fruit of the Spirit together in perfect unity. Love's the key. It is kind of the glue that holds it all together. Our commitment and devotion to God is shown in the way we treat others, in our love for others. Our devotion to God is validated by our love for each other, our love for others. You can't truly love God without loving other people because the commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, there again, it's not either or, it's both. And so we have to do both. And so today, I want you to turn in your Bibles to, to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to be in 1 John 3 and 4. We're going to look at at what love means. And in 1 John chapter 4, I'll start there and then we'll back up to chapter 3. Just to kind of lay the, the groundwork here. 1 John 4, 20 and 21, John says this. He says, if anyone says, I love God, yet he hates his brother, he's a liar. For the person who does not love his brother, he is seen cannot love God, the God he has not seen. And we have this commandment from him the one who loves God must also love his brother. Love isn't just sentimental feelings. It isn't just, you know, being nice. It is practical proof that we love one another. It's shown in our actions. It is a feeling on the inside. There is emotion involved, which we will see, but it's more than that. It's commitment. It's acting on that. It's doing things, acts of love, down to earth, caring, providing, helping people in need, doing things that are tangible, that you can see and measure by by the human eye, by just observation. Love is practical, It is commitment, it is love in action, love that dissolves division, love that brings people together from all races, from all backgrounds, people that would normally not get along with different personalities, even people that under other circumstances might kill each other because of conflict or whatever. Love, this type of love, is the type of love that brings people together and it's based on who God is. Loving is being like God because it's who He is. You know, we see John make two statements about the character of God, the essential nature of God. One is in 1 John 1 5, he says, God is light. The other is in 1 John 4 8, where he says, God is love. He is both of those things. God is holy. He is also love. Love is not just an action. It's not just a character quality of God. It is who He is. He is love. George W. Bethune said this. He said, God was love long before He had made any creatures to be the object of His love, even from all eternity. And You know, it's interesting when you look, especially in the Old Testament, when you see the glory of God on full display, we usually see matched with that some sort sort of account some sort of recognition of the love of God when God allowed uh, his glory in in a a small portion to pass in front of Moses here's what he said to Moses we see him declare this in Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7 he says "Uh, then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed Yahweh Yahweh is compassionate and gracious the glory of God Moses is experiencing slow to anger and rich and faithful what? In faithful love and truth. Maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations. Forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, sin, rebellion and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Bringing the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the, on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. The holiness, the righteousness, the justice of God is married to the love of God. They are not separate. We see Israel recognize God's goodness. As the expression of his glory at the declaration of Solomon's temple in Second Chronicles seven, when the glory of the Lord filled the temple, the priests couldn't even enter it. And then verse three tells us all the Israelites were watching when the fire descended, and the glory of the Lord came on the temple. They bowed down and on the pavement with their faces to the ground. They worshipped and praised the Lord. The glory of God can't even be near it, and they say this: for He is good. His faithful love endures forever. The glory, the holy, the righteousness, the holiness, the righteousness of God, the love of God go hand in hand. And so if we desire to be like God, if we desire to glorify God in our lives, then we need to display some very important characteristics, some traits of love that we see in John. Again, 1 John 3 and 4 is where we're going to be today. He spells out for us very clearly some characteristics, some, some traits that need to be displayed. If we're going to be like God, they need to be displayed in our lives, and they need to be cultivated in our lives. The first is this. Love is generous. Love is generous. It's giving in, in more, more ways than one. Look at First John 3, 16. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down, Jesus laid down his life for us. Then he says, we should also lay down our lives for our brothers. The key idea here is that love gives even when it costs, even when it hurts. We have to be willing to give. John three sixteen. Jesus gave his life for us. The Father gave his one and only Son so that we could be saved. The cost was infinite, but God the Father gave his Son. God the Son gave his life. It cost him greatly, and uh, and the most amazing act of love the world has ever seen. And no one or no, no thing could meet the need we had other than God himself, and that's why he did it, the need for forgiveness of sin. Only he could pay that price. Only he could give so that we could be free from sin. And in his letter, John says that we too should give even at great cost to ourselves. We talked about this last night in our family Bible study. When you look at John 3:16 for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God gave his life. He laid down his life in an amazing act of love. But then you look at 1 John 3:16. And you know, of course, the verses weren't numbered. This was a letter. But I don't think it's any mistake. I think the Holy Spirit was sovereign over this, too, that these two verses, John 3:16, 1 John 3:16, by the same author, inspired divinely by the Holy Spirit, for John 3:16, God gave His life so that we could be saved. And then in 1 John 3:16, "That's what love is. Now you do the same. You need to be willing. We need to be willing to lay down our lives for our brothers. Jesus did it for me. I need to do it for others. Give my life. That's, that's the cost. Love gives even if it costs everything, even if it costs me my life. But how does this apply practically to everyday life? Well, put, put simply, John, in the next verse, he, he applies it for us. In 1 John three seventeen. it means that we are willing to meet our brother's need every day. Whenever we see the opportunity, we do whatever it takes to meet the needs of people around us. We share with our brother in need. But we do it not out of duty, we do it out of compassion, out of a desire to actually love that person. It's motivated by the love, the fruit is on the inside, the love is there, and it expresses itself on the outside by meeting needs, by giving in order to meet the needs of those around us, even if it costs. There are people in need all around us, and we should be willing and involved in meeting those needs. Look at verse 17. Again, John spells it out. He says, If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need but closes his eyes to the need, how can God's love reside in him? Because Meeting needs is a way of displaying God's love. If you have the love of God in you, that's one of the ways it's going to be expressed. Paul gives an example of how the Macedonian church showed this type of love in 2 Corinthians 8, 2 and 3. During a severe testing by affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed into the wealth of their generosity. I testify that on their own, according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave. They gave out of love at great cost to themselves. To Christians in Jerusalem. They were meeting the needs of the brothers. But we can't forget that it also means that we meet the needs of those who aren't a part of the family of God. And that's part of the advancement of the gospel. We meet the needs of the poor. We meet the needs of the desolate, the outcast. That's one of the ways that we reach people. Meeting the needs of the poor is what 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is all about, really. Keep in mind, though, that material needs is not the only need that, that exists. You know, some people just need a listening ear. Some people just need a word of encouragement. Some people need a helping hand, somebody to walk alongside them and share their burdens, share their life. It may not be something physical you're doing for them, but just being there, praying with them, spending time with them. whatever. And let's be honest, this involves giving ourselves, right, our time. And sometimes that's harder than just giving a physical thing, money or whatever. It involves investing in people. Paul says this about Timothy in Philippians 2.20. For I have no one else like-minded who is like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. But then in the next verse, just he compliments Timothy. He chastises. There's an indictment to others in verse 21. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. That's the human nature. Seek my own interests, not looking out for others above myself. And he's saying... Timothy's an example of this. We should love others more than we love ourselves. Put others' needs above our own. Be willing to give. Here's the point. Meeting non-material needs of others costs us getting out of ourselves, our concerns, and our interests. It means setting aside maybe things that I want in order to meet the needs of others, to be there for somebody. Something I would like to do versus something I need to do to minister to somebody, to show the love of Christ in their lives, to get, let them experience it. We cannot take a genuine interest in others unless we are willing to get involved in their interests and concerns. We've got to be willing to invest in the lives of others. We have to be willing to set aside our own interests. Love is generous, even when it costs, regardless of the cost. Next, love is sacrificial. Love is willing to sacrifice. And we see that in God's love for us. In chapter 4 of 1 John, we see in verses 9 through 11, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent His, only, His one and only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. He sent His Son so that we could be forgiven and free from death. Verse 10, love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we must also love one another. God's sacrifice of His Son is front and center here again. But here's the point. God gave... So that he could forgive. God gave his son so that we could be forgiven. Justice had to be served, and he was the only one who could take on our punishment. So he did it. That's what he, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, he's the atoning sacrifice. God gave his son who took away our sins, and he did it by bearing on his own person, his own body, the wrath of God that was due us. He took it on so that we wouldn't have to. He took on the punishment, the wrath of God, so that we wouldn't have to. He took our place. God's justice is required. He is just. He is holy. He cannot... He cannot live with sin. He cannot justify sin and still be just. So, so justice had to be served. So either we have to take on the punishment or he has to. And he decided to take it on himself. He is the atoning sacrifice. He takes our place. But by doing that, by taking on that punishment, now justice is served. God is still both just and he is forgiving without compromising who he is. Jesus Christ paid the price for our sins. God gave, he sacrificed, he did it so that we could be forgiven. He didn't have to do that. He would have been justified in not doing that. But he chose to be the sacrifice, to be the payment. And John goes on here again to apply that type of love, sacrificial love to our personal relationships, how it plays out. Day to day, he says that because God loved us in this way, we should love others that way. So, do we love others enough to forgive them? Forgiveness is really what we're talking about here. And here's the other question Do we love others enough to forgive them even if they don't ask for it? Even if they show no remorse? Even if our brand of justice hasn't been served? are we willing to show grace are we willing to forgive even if i mean usually we want we want an eye for an eye right we want remorse we want to see repentance on the part of someone else we want justice to be get done but we forget that it's not our job to serve justice and we forget what we've been forgiven of because the scripture tells us that we are to be to forgive because we've been forgiven And so we want to see our justice, our brand of justice served. But this type of love means that we got to set that aside, let God handle that. And for our own benefit, for our own, the health of our relationship with God, we've got to be willing to forgive even if that other person never asks or never shows remorse. So do we love one another enough to do that? I went, I've shared this before. I've been to China twice, once on a mission trip in 2009 and once when we adopted our son Elon. In 2009, we went to a, a mission trip to Xichan, which is uh, in China, of course, and then, and then we went to uh, Chengdu, which is in the Sichuan province of China. And after the week of mission work, we went there just to kind of sightsee and, and to see some things, to do some things. And uh, one of the places we went was a panda preserve there, which is, is well known. It's, uh, it's, it's really neat place to be you know we were at the zoo like this past week in Atlanta and they had a couple of pandas and that's kind of a rare thing to see but in China of course you know every zoo you go to you you'll get to see some and this was this was all pandas I mean it was it was a neat experience but I noticed when we went to this preserve when we were paying for admission I noticed that there were three prices listed for three different groups of people if you were Chinese nationality you paid one price if you were American you paid Another price that was a little higher. But the highest was if you were Japanese, you paid a lot. And I saw that and I thought, man, that's interesting. So, you know, the missionary there with us, I asked, why is that? And they, it all goes back to when the Japanese attacked China in 1937. It goes back to World War II. I mean, they are still very upset about that. And you know, listen, hey. I'd probably be upset, too. We were upset with the Japanese when they attacked Pearl Harbor, rightfully so. Tragic. I'm not minimizing that tragedy. I'm not minimizing that war in any way, shape, form, or fashion. But this was 2009. It had been 70 years, and they were still holding a grudge. Now, there may be many reasons for that, and I'm not going to comment on why or why not they, why they haven't moved on from that. But it occurs to me that we tend to take the same approach with people that have offended us. We hold grudges. We want justice. We want to see them pay for what they've done. And listen, there's a lot of hurt. There's evil things that have been done. Some of you have experienced them in your own life. And I'm not minimizing that. God will handle that. Your responsibility, my responsibility for your own health physically physically, And spiritually, is you got to forgive. you got to be willing to let go. Because if you can't and you don't, it will only hurt you. We think we're hurting them, right? We keep them in our little prison of unforgiveness. I'll show them I won't forgive. But in the end, we're really just hurting ourselves. Debbie Ford once said this. She said, unforgiveness is the poison you drink every day wishing the other person would die. It hurts you. It hurts me. And God says, forgive, we've got to let it go. Because God is the only rightful administrator of justice in all of creation. He's the only one who has the right to administer justice. And his justice has been satisfied on the cross for all who will accept his forgiveness and his grace. In order to forgive our brother, we have to be, hear me folks, if we're going to forgive each other, we've got to be satisfied with that. We've got to be satisfied with God's justice and to trust that He will take care of it. That He, the justice will be served. But just as we have received forgiveness, just as we have received grace, we've got to be willing to show forgiveness and grace. Love forgives at great cost to itself. It does not demand justice or even change behavior from. It's brother. It's great when that happens, when reconciliation takes place. Listen, it is wonderful, and we should seek that, and we should desire that. But we have to be willing to forgive because we've been forgiven. And if we don't forgive, God's pretty clear about the consequences of that. We will not be forgiven. We have to be willing to forgive. It's the right thing to do. In Ephesians 4.32, Paul says, And be kind to one another and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ." And he tells the Colossians and us in Colossians 3.13 to be accepting one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. There aren't any conditions there. Forgive because you've been forgiven. So what does it involve? What does forgiveness involve? Well, first of all, it deals with sin. And sin is not good. (laughs) Unpardonable, inexcusable, unforgettable, unacceptable Sin. Real sin that hurts and damages. Second, forgiveness means, means, though, that we erase the act. We let it go. We let go of the wrong. You know, when Peter asked Jesus in Matthew 18, 21, how many times should I forgive someone who sinned against me? Jesus says 70 times 7, right? That word for forgive there means just this, completely letting go of the wrong. Letting it go completely. And Jesus essentially tells Peter, you just keep forgiving. How many times, don't you worry, you just keep forgiving. And that's what we're supposed to do. We release that other person. We let go of the wrong. We release them from our desire to retaliate against them. So it involves sin. It involves letting go of that wrong. And third, forgiveness is granted. It's not earned. By the way, aren't you thankful for that? When it comes to my relationship with God, aren't you glad? I'm so glad that I didn't have to earn forgiveness because I'd never get there. It's granted. It's an act of grace. We receive grace, and so we should show grace to others. And it's not a once and for all act, by the way. I mean, we think, oh, forgive, and then I won't, I won't have to struggle with it anymore. No, it means that I have to make a conscious decision. Sometimes for a long time, every day, I'm going to forgive. I'm going to show grace. I'm letting that go. It'd be great if we were perfect and we could just deal with it and be done, but it means we have to let go, and sometimes it means that we have to continually show grace, especially when that other person has not sought forgiveness we have to let it go forgive this forgiving aspect of love enables us though to be patient with one another to live at peace with one another which leads to our next point and that's that love is relational love is relational biblical love is not emotions or feeling right I mean biblical love is commitment it's action it's I'm gonna love you even if I don't feel like it it's agape love 1 Corinthians 13 all of that but it that doesn't mean that it doesn't involve emotion. Okay, It's not just emotion. Emotions come and go, but biblical love does involve emotion. When the Bible describes a Christian's love toward his brother, it uses phrases like we see in 1 Peter 1.22, love each other deeply with all of your heart. And in Romans 12.10, show family affection. To one another with brotherly love, outdo one another in showing honor. Three different writers use the expression brotherly love or love as brothers, and all of them indicate, in doing so, they indicate that Christian love should be characterized by the affection that family members have or should have for one another. There's emotion involved. Hebrews thirteen one, let brotherly love continue. 1 Peter 3.8, now finally, all of you should be like-minded and sympathetic, should love believers and be compassionate and humble. Deep devotion, genuine affection, emotions are definitely involved here. And we shouldn't pretend that they're not. There is an emotional component to this. We should love each other with deep affection in our hearts. You see, it's both actions and affection. Another example here, it's both, not just one or the other. It's both together. It's actions that are motivated by affection in many cases, but some, you know, love. Here, here's here's the point: love is more than deciding to do acts of love; it's also desiring to do them. You can go through the motions, and sometimes you have to, right? You got to go through the motions and uh, the motions until the emotion comes. But there's also a desire to do what you're doing. But some people are just too difficult to love, you say. Well, you're right. Some people are harder to love than others. We can all agree on that, but we're still called to love them anyway. You know, the two churches that gave Paul the most grief were the Galatian church and the Corinthian church. Difficult to love, you could say, with, with a lot of evidence to support that. But listen to what he says. Look at what Paul writes about them. First, the Corinthian church. In 2 Corinthians 2.4, For I wrote to you with many tears out of an extremely troubled and anguished heart. Not that you you should be hurt, but that you should know the abundant love I have for you. And then the Galatian church. In Galatians 4, 19 and 20, My children, I am again suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. That's pretty intense. I would like to be with you right now and change my tone of voice because I don't know What to do about you? He's troubled by them. They're causing him grief, but tears, anguish, labor pains, abundant love. These are all terms that express deep affection, deep emotion that Paul has. It's his love didn't matter that they were difficult to love. He still felt this way about them. He still loved them. And I'm sure he had to work pretty hard at times to love them this way. But he did it nonetheless. He had genuine affection. It definitely involved emotion. And we can't just be content with just doing acts of love. Those are great and those are needed and we need to perform acts of love. We've already covered that. That's part of this. But we can't just be content with that. We need to love others with affection. If there's somebody in your life that's difficult to love, that you're struggling to love, start by praying. Pray for that person intently, daily, regularly. Pray that God will give you the type of affection, the type of emotion that Paul had for the Galatians, for the Corinthians, that we're to have for each other, even those people in our lives that are difficult. Ask him to give you a spirit and a desire that results in you reaching out to meet that person's need, to show that affection in concrete acts. So how do we achieve this? It's easy to say, right? How do we actually do this? How does this play out in our lives? Well, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 and 10 tells us about brotherly love. You don't need me to write you because you yourselves are taught by God. To love one another, and then in the next verse he says, "In fact, you are doing this toward all the brothers in the entire region of Macedonia." But we encourage you, brothers, do so even more. Godlike character is both a fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit working in us. He teaches us how to do this, but it's also an outward action. Remember, it's both, not both and not either or. The Holy Spirit teaches us, but then we have to act on it. So there is will involved. There is action involved. Yes, God will give you the desire if you ask him, but then you actually have to act on it. So there is teaching involved. So again, how do we cultivate this? What's our role in this? First, if the Lord teaches us, he uses the Spirit, uses the Word of God to teach us, to transform us, to instruct us, to show us how to love this way. So we need to immerse ourselves in God's word. And as it relates to love, to passages that relate to love. Let me give you some suggestions. Start with the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. You know, verses 1 through 3 talks about the emptiness of knowledge and abilities apart from love. Verses 4 through 7 describes love in terms of specific attitudes and actions. You can glean a lot from just camping out there for a while. Also, Romans 13, 8-10, it describes in, love in terms of fulfilling the law of God in our lives. And then we just talked in 1 John, those great passages today of love in terms of giving and forgiving and relating to each other. So I encourage you to meditate on some of these love passages. Start there. Allow the Holy Spirit to teach you through His Word. Second, we need to pray for the Holy Spirit to apply His Word to our heart and to our daily lives to show us Examples, ways that we can live it out each day. And then finally, we need to obey. We do the things that love dictates. We learn from the Holy Spirit. He shows us ways we can apply, but then we have to act. It has to, it's on the inside, it has to flow on the outside. We don't harm each other. We meet each other's needs. We forgive wrongs that have been done to us. We put the interests of others above our own we reach out and embrace each other with deep affection as paul had as we are called to have for each other the love of christ but we do it all in dependence on the holy spirit he works in us and it flows out of us because what we find is that the love of god we cannot fully love god unless we love others and the love of god that is inside of us will always flow out if it's truly the love of god and by the way It never reaches its full maturity until it does. It's beneficial only for us, for others, only when it flows out. It's kind of like this can of shaving cream. It wants to help me today? (laughs) No volunteers. I don't need a volunteer today. But it's kind of like this. Shaving cream, it's in the can. Can you hear it? Right? It's in there. I know it's in there, right? I can hear it. I can feel it moving around in there. But in order for it to actually benefit me which I don't use much of, but in order for it to benefit any of you who would use shaving cream, what do I have to do? It's got to come out, right? It's got to flow out, and it will. Just like it fills up this glass, you know, if I'm going to shave, i got to lather it on. It's got to benefit. If it's going to benefit me, it's got to come out. And as long as I push this button, it's going to keep coming out, right? Some of you are getting nervous right about now, aren't you? I wish some of you would have said a little closer, <laughs> but shaving cream is interesting for a couple of reasons. I mean, the fact that it does what it does, you know, you can, helps you shave without cutting yourself, razor burn and all that, but just this can, look what all's come out of this, right? It grows when it comes out, doesn't it? It's amazing how it works. And that's what the love of God should do in our lives. I know it's in me, it's there, I can feel it, I've experienced it, but it never benefits me, it never benefits others until it comes out. And what we see is that just like this shaving cream, again, compare the size here, just like this shaving cream grows and continues to grow, by the way, when the love of God comes out, when it's expressed to others through forgiveness, through giving, even when it costs, even when it hurts, By having deep affection that's shown and embracing others and doing for others, when it comes out, it's contagious but in a good way. It's not a word we like to hear nowadays, but in a good way. It grows. And that's God's plan, by the way. Once you've experienced the love of God, you will want others to experience it too. So the application is clear, I think. If not, let me clear it up for you. Are you willing to give even when it costs? Are you willing to forgive even when it hurts, when it's not easy to do so? Are you willing to love the unlovable? And are you willing to seek, desire, and express the deep affection that God would have for you to express? It begins with a relationship with Christ. You can't have this love without that. So that may be where you need to start. And it continues with a relationship that's nurtured by the Word of God and by the presence of the Holy Spirit yielding daily the Holy Spirit's reign and rule over your life. Let's go before the Lord in prayer and seek this type of love. Lord, we want this love to be matured in our lives. We want to see you displayed through us. We have experienced your love graciously and in, in the most extravagant display known to man. God, you gave your son Jesus. Jesus, you gave your life. You sacrificed everything so that we could be free, we could be forgiven. And I pray that if there's someone here today or watching online who has not experienced that grace, salvation, that they would come during this time of commitment or even cry out where they are now and just invite you into their lives, recognizing that they've sinned and crying out for forgiveness and accept that gracious gift that only you can offer. We've talked about your atoning sacrifice. You paid the price so that we wouldn't have to, but we have to accept that gift. And so you gave your life so that we could be free. Now we're called to do the same, to express love in the tangible ways that we've discussed this morning. And I pray that we would com- be committed to doing just that, whatever it takes, whatever we're struggling with. If, if someone's struggling with forgiveness, give them the ability to forgive. It may take time. It may be a process of daily showing grace and reminding themselves and submitting to you and laying it at your feet for a while. It may be that you've given us opportunities to show love and we haven't taken advantage of those. It may be loving those who are difficult to love. It may be that we don't really have the emotion, the affection that goes with it and we need that to be cultivated in our hearts. It all involves submission and I pray that whatever you're calling us to do in this moment, we would do just that. We would submit to you and allow you to have free reign in our lives. Whatever you ask us to do, may we be obedient. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Would you stand for this time of invitation?